Good morning. Children, off you go. Off you go. Travis, what are we teaching them today? Clean and unclean. So thank you for those that uh, go to teach our children and make disciples. Uh, yeah, what a great joy that members of this church can sign up, have people just to show up and teach them the Bible. They just happen to be short and smaller, and, and they're very interested most of the time. Um, uh, just another reminder for those of you that are members of the church, um, it is not often that you can go and dive deeply into particular doctrines, in particular the doctrine of the church. Um, there's plenty of other stuff that's doctrines that are taught freely and openly, uh, but I can tell you, having followed Jesus now for about 20 plus years, um, I'm finding increasingly the people that love Jesus and thrive in Christ are the people that think deeply about the church, serve the church, love the church, are part of the church. And uh, I would encourage you, if you don't know much about the church, other than I should just show up if I'm a Christian, um, then go to the class. All right, talk to Joey about that. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time of opening your word. Lord, we believe that your word teaches us that he who is humble and contrite and trembles at your word, that you will be with them. That's the one of whom you will look, and so we do so now. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So do you know what the most frequently used command in the Bible is? So in order to ask you, what's the most frequently used command in the Bible? What do you think it might be? Very good, whoever said that. That's exactly right. Yeah, fear not. Do not be afraid. Use some 300 times in the Bible. Fear not. Do not be afraid. And that's appropriate, isn't it? Given the fact that fear is one of the most common, most shared experiences of humanity. All of us fear something, right? You might be like me and fear heights, right? Or you fear the Cubs winning another World Series, right? These kinds of things. Uh, or more often than not, you fear things that are even deeper than that, right? Deep and abiding. We fear dying. We fear loved ones dying. We fear being unloved or being left alone in our lives. Uh, we fear that we may not find that our lives turn out like we thought they might. We fear not having enough money. We fear being in debt. We fear uh, how other people see us. We fear being wrong. We fear change. We fear public speaking. We fear all these kinds of of things. And these fears can master us, can't they? They can almost sometimes feel as though they are like the rudder and we are the ship and they're just controlling us. It's difficult. And so what joy there is in knowing that the most frequent command from God is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. This morning as we continue our meditation on Luke's gospel, we come to four stories that really encapsulate four fears or maybe five fears. The fear of danger, the fear of evil or demons, the fear of prolonged sickness or even being in isolation, being alone, and the fear of death. We'll meet people that react to these fears in all kinds of different ways, but in the face of these fears, we meet the God that says, don't be afraid. And we meet Jesus who willingly enters into these fears. And while in those dangers, he looks at us and asks us, where is your faith? In those dangers. 
So let's go ahead and dive in. Here's how I'm going to do this. Three movements to the sermon this morning. We'll look at Jesus is the king. He has all authority. King of the kingdom. Secondly, we'll kind of look at the kingdom uh, itself because it's modeling the kingdom, the kingdom of God, which is a world at rest. And thirdly, we'll make the application for us answering that question. Where is your fear? How is it we deal with our fears? How is it we can have our fears quieted? That'll be the third sort of thing. So first off, though, let's take a look at Jesus, the king of the kingdom. He has all authority. Verse 22 of chapter 8. Here's what it says. God's word. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with, de- with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. So the first thing that we learn here, first big idea from this passage, Jesus has authority over creation. Jesus has authority over creation. Now remember, Luke is writing to this guy Theophilus, and by extension he's writing to us so that we might have certainty regarding the things that we have been taught about Jesus. That's the point. Go back and look in Luke 1.4. We've got to have certainty regarding the things regarding Jesus. Luke wants us to know, and the reason why he's given us these stories, he wants us to know, he wants us to see that Jesus is no fly-by-the-night prophet. He's no mere local celebrity that did some nice things. He wants us to see that Jesus has all authority. The disciples marvel at Jesus, and notice that word even, circle that word even there. He commands even The winds and the waves. In other words, the disciples are observing the fact that Jesus can command inanimate objects and they obey him. In the midst of natural disasters, friends, be reminded. Jesus has authority over creation. Second story, Luke chapter 8, verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out of the on land, by the way, they made it across. Right There met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? What are the demons? Who do the demons believe Jesus is? There's your answer. They bow before him, Jesus, son of the most high God. I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would even, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. This is Gentile land, by the way. Now, a large herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And then people went out to see what had happened. 
And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. Friend, don't believe that just because you see a miracle, you'd believe. There's plenty of people here that want him away when they see it. And so he got into the boat and he returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Notice what Legion says. Jesus says, return to your home, declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus, friends, is God. Big idea here, Jesus has authority over evil and demons. Jesus has authority over evil and demons. Some of you are familiar with that sort of yin-yang symbol. Maybe you've seen that before, the white and the black kind of going together. That sort of worldview, that kind of represents a worldview of kind of good against evil, right? So that's, that's how those people would see the world. There's kind of this battle in the world between good and evil. Who's going to win? One side sort of takes some steps one day. The other side kind of takes some other steps. The other day, who knows who's going to win? Is it going to be good? It's going to be evil. This is sort of what we see in the movie Star Wars. That's basically what's happening, right? You've got the bad guys and the good guys. Who's going to win? That's how a lot of people see the world. Every day a battle rages. But here, friends, we see that Jesus dispels that myth of thinking. Jesus goes up against not one, not two, not three demons, but many demons. One Jesus, many demons. One Jesus, great evil. So great is this evil that it can control a man, have him to sit naked and living amongst tombs. And yet we know the demons immediately know their place. In the presence of Christ, these many demons, this great evil cowers. They bow and they beg Jesus. They call him the son of the most high God. They recognize his authority. And once again, what does Jesus do? Just as he did with the wind and the waves, he preached. So he does the same here. He preaches. He speaks words. And what happens? Those demons obey. They're sent away to the pigs and they drown. And in the place, uh, Legion is healed. Legion is healed. Like the wind and the waves, Legion is calmed. He's at peace. He's at rest. He responds then, Legion does, by doing what Jesus commands, preaching the word about Jesus. He responds by preaching the word about Jesus. Jesus, friends, has authority over evil and demons. Third story, verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had, only, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age. And she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. I love this next line. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. In other words, the disciples are going, what do you mean who touched you? I mean, the people are all around you. The disciples are so much like us, aren't they? And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, 
Sorry, let me back up to verse 46. And, but Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. So we learn something about the experience of Christ. When you see healing, something internally is felt by Jesus. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Exact same language that we got from the sinful woman back in chapter 7, verse 50. What's the big idea here? You guys should see it by now. Jesus has authority over sickness. It's authority over sickness. Look at verse 43 again. Just as Luke did with the waters filling the boat, just as he did with the many demons, here Luke emphasizes the power of the problem. For 12 years, this poor woman had spent all that she had in order to be healed of her bleeding, and none of it worked. Luke is going out of his way to show you all of these problems, the kind of blackness of the backdrop, so as to show you the power of Jesus' might. Forgive me, my notes are out of order. This terrible power, 12 years had gone by. She's not been able to be healed. No physician, nothing. And in steps Jesus. And with a mere touch of the hem of his robe, she's healed immediately. And so the sea and the disciples' fears are calmed by Jesus. Legion is calmed by Jesus. The bleeding woman is calmed by Jesus because Jesus has power over sickness. I should add here that according to the law of the land, this woman would have been uh, deemed unclean by society. She would have been a kind of outcast for some 12 years. She probably felt alone because she was alone by no fault of her own, save her living in a broken world where things like this happen. But by the power of Jesus healing her, not only was her sickness healed, I'm sure her loneliness was healed as well. She now had it possible to be made part of the community again. Look at how Jesus refers to her again in verse 48. Daughter. In other words, you're part of the family. Come back in. Right? We were reminded last week of chapter 8, verse 21. Remember there, Jesus says that uh, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So this woman now had a family. Jesus has authority over sickness and loneliness. Fourth and final story, Luke chapter 8, verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned. And she got up at once and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. What's the big idea here? You should guys, you should know this by now where we're going. Jesus has authority over what? Death, right? Death. Someone from the ruler's house had already deemed the rescue mission hopeless. Don't even bother coming. She's already dead. The girl is no longer sick. She's dead. But there we get that most frequent command in the Bible. Verse 50. Do not fear. Do not fear. Only believe. 
and she'll be well. Why? Because Jesus has authority over death. Why? Because he's the resurrection and the life. So he goes into the house and while everyone is mourning, while everyone sees the situation hopeless beyond repair, Jesus believes because he knows who he is and what he's capable of. And apparently the parents believe since Jesus is calling them to faith. They mock him. They laugh at him just as they do his people today that still believe in a resurrection. And what happens? Jesus preaches. Child arise. And she does. And her parents are amazed. Fear not. Fear not. Now, if you're wondering why Jesus tells them to not say anything, well, there's a good reason for that. You're going to have to keep coming back to get the answer. For now, we're going to move on. A little teaser for you. But what we find here when we pull all of these stories together is we find that Jesus is the king of the kingdom. He's preaching the kingdom of God. He's the king of the kingdom. How is it we know that he's the kingdom? He's the king of the kingdom because he has authority over creation. He has authority over evil and demons. He has authority over sickness and death. And he has authority even over loneliness as we see. And we see him preaching this authority, preaching this kingdom. We see him promising this kingdom to all that come. And he is the unique one in that he is actually performing his authority. He is portraying this kingdom. He'll go on to say that he has all authority in and of himself. He says, Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. All authority. And we see here, Jesus exercises his kingly authority. How? He exercises it for good. He exercises his all-encompassing authority for good. God does not use his authority for evil as so many do, but he uses it for good because he's a good God. And the way that he uses his authority over all things for good is by bringing peace to the fears of people. Jesus' authority is used to cast out evil and bring in tranquility. That leads us into what this whole book is about. It's about king and about kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. If you look down there, just after this passage, we'll we'll take a look at this next week. Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, what do they do? He sends out the disciples to preach the kingdom of God. And you'll notice, they're curing, by the way, diseases, all these other things. But also, you'll look back up from our passage from last week, chapter 1, 8, chapter 1. You'll see Jesus is preaching a kingdom there. So before the passage, our passage today, we have the preaching of the kingdom of God. After our passage today, we have the preaching of the kingdom of God. So that you can think of them sort of like two pieces of bread. And in between is our four passages, our four stories today, which serve as the illustration of the kingdom. So you've got the kingdom of God, kingdom of God, the illustration of the kingdom of God, which is Jesus' authority, which brings in rest to the world. That's what we see. We've said already that Jesus is the king of the kingdom. He has all authority. He's preaching a kingdom which is illustrated in these four stories. What is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom of God is a world at rest. I love that Hebrew word shalom. Wholeness. A world shalom. World at rest. A world at peace. See, there's something about the ubiquity of fear in humanity that points to the universal hunger of a world at peace. We all want that, right? No more worries, no more troubles, no more fears. Just peace, just rest. All of us have this voice deep down in our souls that whisper to us, this is not the way the world is supposed to be. And we want it to be made right. And by right, we mean not just right for me or even for my state or my country, but the whole world. We want it just to be fixed. 
And we could come up with a thousand things that we all instinctively know that are just wrong. And we want to see them be made right. Things like racism and other injustices, abuse, hunger, tsunamis, droughts, oppression, stealing, adultery. It all instinctively feels wrong. And we want it to be made right. Children with cancer. Stray bullets hitting innocent passersby. Tornadoes, earthquakes, viruses, avalanches. All of these things are incredibly familiar to us. And yet they still feel abnormal. Isn't that interesting? Provocative thought. We all know them to be sort of normal, but we all still know there's something about it that's not right. And we have this desire, everybody does, to see them turned around. There's something within us that says this, it's supposed to be different. We can think about the death of an old woman or an old man that lived in the fullness of their years. Even still, we look at those and those funerals and go, death is still not right. There's something that's not right about this. We want hunger. We hunger for this healing in the world. And that, friends, is what Jesus' ministry is doing. He's preaching the kingdom. He's portraying the kingdom. He's promising the kingdom. He's illustrating this kingdom of a world at rest. And he is actually bringing it in. His preaching of the kingdom matched with his miracles are meant to show that the world that we all want, friends, is real. And he is the one that brings it about. The storms that are being put away and in their place tranquility, the fears of the disciples put away, evil and demons thrust away, no, long, no longer able to disturb legion. And in, and in its place, legion is calm. He's clothed in his right mind. Sickness and loneliness gone in its place. Life, healing, community, family. And the greatest enemy of all, death destroyed, overcome. And in its place, amazement, life. These are the previews, friends, of the coming attraction of Christ's consummated kingdom. That's what they're meant. So many of us, that's what I grew up believing, that the miracles are meant to just show Christ's divinity. It is that, but there's a bigger reason. The bigger reason is to show, yes, that Christ is divine, but he, as the divine one, as the king, can bring in the kingdom that everybody wants, a world at rest. And these little miracles are meant to be appetizers, teasers. They are appetizers to the feast of the heavenly world. That's what we're being told here. They are the glimpses into the forever glory of the new Canaan, where our fears are dispelled and in their place is a world of peace, a world at rest. Everyone wants the world that the kingdom of God illustrates. Everybody does. You may be here this morning as a skeptic. You may be here as a humanist, as a Buddhist, as a Muslim. But everyone, you, you want the world to be at rest. You want the world that's being pictured here. You might disagree that Jesus actually accomplished these things. We can have that conversation. But you desire what he's doing. And as well you should. None of us disagree that the world hungers, that you hunger, that we hunger for this world that Christ is bringing about. See, friends, the reality is every single worldview on planet Earth, apart from Christianity, is built on the hopes of man achieving that utopia. Everybody. Be it secularism or religion, either one. The hope is built on man to bring about that hunger that all of us hunger for, to bring about the answer to that hunger. The hope is on man to accomplish it. So in one realm, some would say, well, if we can just trust in science and and sort of get out the religious shackles of the world that are holding us back, get rid of religion, let science do this thing, we'll bring in the utopia. 
Others would say, well, if we can just dismiss all of those scientists, which is half the people in this room, by the way, uh, if we can just dismiss all of them and just bring in religion, then we can bring in the utopia. Then there are others that say, well, you know, we're going to need a little bit of both. If we can advance in education and medicine and advocacy and government and philosophy, the thinking goes, we can get there. We can bring in this world of hope and healing. And yet, friends, the reality is, as each generation marches on, we have new advances, new discoveries. Praise God for that. I thank God for the ways that you guys work at that. I pray that we get more. But the reality is, with every single generation, every time we have some new achievement, some new discovery, whatever the case may be, some new one pops up. And every generation has to deal with the same amount of brokenness as the one before. It's sort of like that game that you play at you know, arcade where you pop one mole's head and another one pops up over here. just can't stop it. Brokenness just keeps going. But here in Christ, we not only see Jesus teaching, a, teaching and preaching and promising a kingdom again, we see him portraying it. You see him actually doing it. The only one that is actually doing it. Dispelling the fears of many, introducing healing. While I should add, at the very same time, introducing fears to others. More on that in a minute. But regardless, in Christ's kingdom of God, we see that in his rule, like no other, the world that everyone wants is real. Just as our hunger points to the reality of food, just as our thirst points to the reality of water, so our hunger for a better world is real. And it's found in Christ and the kingdom that he is bringing in. And so this is critical for us as Christians to understand. It's really important for us as Christians to understand. I'm kind of doing a little bit of application here. As Christians, we do not believe that creation is evil. Right? We, we don't believe that flesh and blood is evil or bad. Our bodies are not cages holding us back. No, our bodies are good creations from God. He said so in Genesis 1. Our bodies are God's good creation. And so, just as we see in Jairus' daughter, we as Christians, we wait for the day, we see it in the resurrection, we wait for the day when the Spirit will be returned to glorified bodies where we will be made completely right. That's what Jesus promises for all of his redeemed. Just as you see to Jairus, it's sort of pictured there. Resurrected and restored bodies that are united to resurrected and restored spirits. Therefore then, friends, what that means is, is our instincts for creation as meaning is right. It's good. That, that vision of Peter that is sometimes used to take down such a view where the world is sort of burned up in Second Peter. Friends, the point of that fire is to show that God is going to cut away the, it's a refiner's fire. He's going to cut away the dross of death and bring in a world of healing and hope. God does not give up on the world that he made good. And so therefore, what he's promising to us is, is that he's going to make this world right. And so therefore, we have reason to believe that there's meaning in creation. We don't give up on it. God gave us a world that was very good. Romans 8.21 teaches us that creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Just before that, Paul says that creation waits eagerly, longing for this redemption. I can't help but wonder if those winds and those waves sort of went, oh, that was so good. We got a little bit of taste of it, of what's coming. So here's what that means. Since the kingdom of God, pictured in Christ's miracles, are previews of coming attractions in God's consummated heavenly world, we then, as Christians, are people of hope. 
We are people of hope. We are people of great anticipation in the midst of a broken world. We we are certainly a people that lament. Let's get that really clear. We are people that weep with those that weep. We are people that work against, this is the beauty of the scientists in this room, we are people who work against death and injustices. We're trying to push back on those. But the reality is, friends, we, while we weep, while we lament, while we mourn, while we work against those things, while we do all of this, the reality is we are people of hope. We are people that know a day is going to come when this world will be made right. And that good work that we do now will go on into eternity. That gives us hope to keep going. We do all of this work knowing deep down the world of rest and healing is coming. Christ will bring it in. And this is why we are a people that are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's why we can do that. Because we know that the world that we all want is coming in the consummated kingdom of God. We've tasted it. We've seen it in certain ways. And so therefore, we as the church, then, are that people out in front of time we are supposed to be the local church gospel loving churches are supposed to be the miniature of that kingdom out in front of time this is what paul writes about in ephesians 3 through the church the manifold wisdom of god might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places now to be clear restoration church is not the kingdom right it's been five minutes with me you'll know that right Restoration Church is not the kingdom, but we are to picture the kingdom. Right? Picture the kingdom. If the world wants to know where hope can be found amidst a broken world, where fears can be dispelled and oriented into hope, where the power of Christ can be seen now, today, they should find it here amongst us. We have been given, as we saw last week, eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. We have the good deposit of the Spirit within us. We have been given the righteousness of Christ. We know what love is. We know what love does. We know what hope is and what hope does. We know what restoration is and what restoration does. And as people come to us, they should see a picture, an imperfect picture, but they should see a picture into the heavenly world. People should see in us, both in word and in deed, that kind of marveling and amazement that we read about in the characters of these stories. Now, to be clear, I don't think that's going to come from from miracles, as we see in these passages. That does not seem to be the calling card that Jesus has given us as the church. Do I think miracles can happen? Of course they do. But that doesn't seem the main thing that he expects us to be the illustrating, to, to be the appetizer of the heavenly world. The thing that Jesus teaches us is the thing that will show us the heavenly world in advance of time. It's not, my, my, not miracles, but he says, Jesus says in John 13, 35, A new command I leave you. And he goes on to say that by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. All people will know that you are part of the kingdom of God, citizens of the kingdom of God. By this, all people will know that you are a people of rest and of healing, of peace, by the way you love one another. That, Jesus says, is the calling card of God's people. Not miracles, love. Supernatural, sacrificial love to one another out of a love for God. And so like the characters in this story, the local church hears the word of God. We talked about that last week. It takes care how it hears. The spirit gives life to us and the love that is manifested by its giving itself to the good of others in Jesus' name. 
In hope-filled, Jesus-saturated love, we move towards others, and one by one, fears are dispelled, and peace and rest comes as we love each other in word and in deed. And soon enough, beloved, we will be home in that consummated kingdom of heaven. But now the question remains, how do we get this life? How do we have our fears dispelled? We fear not. How does that happen to us? We've thought about the king, thought about the kingdom. How does this happen to us? We thought part of the answer is just being part of God's people. But our answer to that question of how our fears might be relieved is found in that first story. Now, I broke these stories up in the preaching calendar this way because I believe, as we said earlier, there's this kind of unit, the sandwich that I mentioned earlier. It's the door to the application of the meaning of this passage. It comes to us from that provocative question right there in verse 25. How is it our fears are relieved? Verse 25, well, where is your faith? Where is your faith? That seems to be the decisive factor for Jesus. If you've been hearing and taking care how you hear through this series in Luke, it shouldn't come as a surprise to you, this notion of faith. It comes up a number of times, right? We saw it in the sinful woman two weeks ago. We saw it in the crew that lowered the man down from the roof to be healed. We see it in every single one of these stories right here, this notion of faith. Faith means trust. I wish there was a Bible translation that would take the word faith and translate it as trust. Trust. It's a decisive factor into entering into the peaceful shores of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, friend, is asking you this morning, amidst your fears, conjure them up for a moment, amidst your fears, where is your faith? Look at verse 23, for example. Luke clearly says the disciples were in danger. They're not hiding it. And as a result, they were afraid for their lives. And a lot of our fears are like those disciples. They are legitimate fears. They are reasonable. They're understandable. Look at the other stories. Society has reason to be fearful of legion. That's why they had to have him locked up. He broke chains and lived in a graveyard talking crazy, right? The bleeding woman had reason to be fearful of economic ruin, of a life of exclusion, of pain. Uh, Maybe even she has reason to be fearful of Christ, as we see. Jairus was understandably fearful about the death of his daughter. All reasonable fears. The question is not if we have fear, we're all, we have reason. We are going to have reason for fear in a broken world. The question Jesus is asking us is where are you going to go to find peace, to find rest amidst those fears? That is, where is your trust? Where is your faith amidst the fear? The answer to that question will answer whether or not you are entering into the kingdom. We only have two options this passage gives us. Two options. They are shown to us in this passage. Either we come to Jesus to find peace and rest, or we walk away from him. We shoo him away. And we find fear, we find trust in other things to give us peace. The disciples are fearful, and eventually, what do we see? They run to Jesus. They go to him. They wake him up. And he calms the storms, which calms then the fears of their danger. Whereas the demons and all of the people of the surrounding region of the Kerosenes, they were fearful, but they didn't have faith. And what happened? They begged him to go away. And they drowned. Jesus creates fear in people that want to push him away. If you only have fear of him, the might of his glory, with the absence of faith, you want him away. 
And friend, that, if that's you this morning, you might be aware of the authority of Christ. You might believe that God is real. But if you do not trust Jesus, then friend, your lot is found in those people, the garrison, in those demons. You get what you ask for. A life apart from him. Drowning. So they're begging Jesus to go away. See the word? They're begging. But look at verse 38. I love Luke's doing this. He's very intentional. Legion is begging too. What's he begging for? To be with Jesus. Love that. Just want to be with you, Jesus. Demons begging that he go away. Legion begging to be with Jesus. So even though the bleeding woman, though, as we move back to the story, forward in the story, even though the bleeding woman would have been considered unclean and the proud and the crowds even pressed in around Jesus, nevertheless, she went to Jesus. And even after she was healed, Jesus asked who it was in verse 27. It says that she came to Jesus trembling and fell down. And then she says to everybody why she came to Jesus. Jairus, as his 12-year-old daughter was slipping away, ran to Jesus, fell at his feet, believing, trusting. He came to Jesus. Friends, we all fear, but where is your faith amidst those fears? That's what Jesus is asking you this morning. Will you be like the demons and the people of the Gerasenes and in your fear put Jesus away, revealing an absence of saving faith? Or will you be like the others and amidst your fears run to Jesus? Run to Jesus, believing that he is the king of the kingdom, the Lord of lords. Believing that the wind and the waves obey him. Believing that evil and demons obey him. Believing that sickness, isolation, loneliness, pain obey him. Believing that death obeys him. Because he's the resurrection and the life. Amidst your fears, will you come to Jesus because you believe that he's the king of the kingdom of God? He's bringing in a world of rest. He can calm your fears. And therefore you come to him seeking rest for your anxious soul both now and forever. Will you come to him or will you dismiss him amidst your fears? And when I say come to him, you say, Nathan, these dudes are coming straight to him because he's standing there. What does that mean for me? He's not like standing around. What I mean by that, the way in which we come to Jesus in faith is three things. We come to his word. We come to his people. And we come straight to him in prayer. Those are the three ways. It's best if you can do all three of those at the same time in the midst of your fears. Go to his word. Go to his people. Go to him straight in prayer. Jesus purchased that for us at the cross where we can go straight to him. Amidst your fears, where is your faith? As is evidenced by your going to his word, going to his people, going to him in prayer, asking him to calm your fears, trusting him to do that. See, it's not good enough, friends, to trust Jesus when things are good. We thought about that last week. Anybody can have a faith like that. You find your faith if you show yourself to come to Jesus when things are bad, when things are hard, when things are distressing. Doesn't mean that you just, it's really easy to do. Remember, look at the, look at the bleeding woman. It was hard for her to do. She came fearing and trembling, but she still came. But you do it because you believe that Jesus is the only ultimate way that your soul can find rest. Now listen, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, Nathan, this makes for good preaching. I don't know that it makes for good living. In other words, it's easy to stand in a pulpit on a Sunday morning in the midst of your fears, great though they are, and me just say, hey, come to Jesus. Like I said, he's not there physically. 
Luke clearly emphasizes the bleeding woman comes to Jesus and she's immediately healed. Our fears don't often work that way, do they? What about the rest of us, you might be asking? What about the rest of us that can't run to the sleeping Jesus to stop an oncoming natural disaster? What about the rest of us who can't just see evil and demons thrust aside into the herd of pigs after Jesus just preaches a word? What about the rest of us who won't see our loved one raise up after they die? It's easy to ask where your faith is when Jesus is there in person, readily able to make it right immediately as we see here. But that's not us, right? So if you're saying that, then friend, let me just say to you, that's a fair I've held both of my infant sons when their lives were hanging on the balance. And I prayed with no assurance that they would be made well. And it was scary. Thankfully, by the grace of God, they lived. But the reality was, in those moments, I didn't know. All signs were not looking good. But here's the truth we have to hold on to amidst our fears. We run to Jesus amidst our fears Not just because he promises to immediately give us peace and rest. We come to him because he promises to give us eternal healing and rest. That's the difference. The disciples' fears of perishing in the boat did not come to the realization in that moment. But they eventually did. They eventually perished. The bleeding woman. She found healing in Jesus immediately. But eventually her sickness of death caught up with her. She died. Jairus' daughter was immediately raised from the dead, but eventually Jairus' daughter died, and so will all of us. When Jesus calls us to come to him in faith, he's inviting us into everlasting life, not temporal life. Not just now life, forever life. In other words, we come to Jesus because of the hope that we talked about earlier. We don't come to Jesus just for today. We come to Jesus for forever for forever, right? If, if the only reason you come to Jesus is find peace for your fears in the immediacy, which we want, but if that's the only reason you're coming, then you come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. Jesus is interested in more than just today. He's interested in forever. Forever. This is what the gospel is all about, friends. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom of God, and the gospel is the kingdom of God insofar as we understand that Jesus the Christ came in flesh and blood, and he did this thing called redemption. He embodied what it looks like to overcome sin and death, right? He paid the payment for sin. Only he could do it because he's the only sinless one on the cross of Christ. And that blood served as a price for redemption for all that believe on him. And his resurrection, the scripture tells us the resurrection is a first fruits. It's the first indication that all of this world that he was picturing in the miracles, they're going to come about. And so this is why uh, this is why we have this gospel. This is why Christians gather on Sundays. This is why we preach the gospel to ourselves every day because the gospel is the price of our redemption. We look to Jesus who overcomes sin and death for forever. And that first fruits, that resurrection is indicating that all of it is true. All of it is real. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18. We do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away. Amen. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. This he's writing to the church. For this light momentary affliction, doesn't feel light, but these fears we have, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's why it's light in comparison to what's coming. 
And so we look not. So here's the here's his application. We look not to the things that are seen. That is the immediacy. But to the things that are unseen. That's the forever. That's the consummated kingdom of God. That's looking into the face of Christ forever. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal, he says. So we come to Jesus because we believe we are being prepared for an eternity of glory. Not a temporal state of rest that eventually ends in futility. I love how the author of Hebrew says this. He says, after documenting the faith of the saints of old, he goes on to say in Hebrews, Hebrews 11, 13 and 14, and then 16, these, the ones of faith, these all died in the faith. He was referencing Abraham and others. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. That's what we do. And having acknowledged that they, and we in Christ, were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. He goes on, as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them and us a city. A city where there's no more fears, no more dangers, no more death, no more bleeding, none of that stuff, no more loneliness, forever, eternal glory in Christ and reconciled with one another. And so when fear and anxiety overtake you, don't push Jesus away. Run to Jesus. Ask him to heal you. Run to his people to ask them to pray for you and love you so that you would trust him to give you peace, to give you rest. But above all, ask him to give you a vision for a better city. Ask him to birth in you a vision for a better city that's revealed in these miracles where there is never reason to be fearful again. Where is your faith, beloved? Where is your faith? Well, I thank God in Christ that the king of the kingdom, the one who has all authority, has defeated sin and death on the cross and in the resurrection. And so I plead with us to come to Jesus amidst your fears. Come to Jesus. He may not relieve those fears in the immediacy like these people. But remember, we come to him to find rest for now in order that we would be encouraged to trust in him for forever so that a day will come. We'll live in that city where all our fears will be gone. And as that happens, when he gives you rest, maybe it's just a little bit, when he gives you rest, when he gives you peace, when you come to Jesus and you find peace in his word, in his people, in prayer, when that happens, after that, do as Jesus commanded legion. Go, tell everyone what God has done for you, right? Don't keep it. Tell everyone. Tell everyone what God has done for you. God has done so much for this piece of work. So I want to obey this passage by telling you, God has done great things for me. Not because I am anything. I am nothing. But by his grace and for his glory, he has healed me. He has encouraged me. He has strengthened me. He's given me friends. He's given me family. He's given me salvation. And I want you to know that. I want you to have that. That's why I'm a pastor, because I want to help people come to Jesus and find life in him. That's the only reason I'm doing this. Go to Jesus. And then afterwards, as he gives you peace, go tell other people what he's done for you. Don't be afraid. He has all authority. Go tell others. And invite them back into the community of heaven out in front of time so that they too might find peace and rest in Jesus. Let's pray.
Jesus, you are the king of the kingdom. All authority is yours. You are bringing in your kingdom. One person at a time. All over the world. Your kingdom is a world at rest. You preached it. You promised it. You portrayed it. And so, God, we enter by grace through faith in Jesus. Not just the day we got saved, but every day. Give us grace, O God, to have a vision of a better city. So that day after day, amidst our fears, we come to Jesus. We come to your word. We come to your people. We come to prayer and we find rest. And Lord, then give us a vision to go speak about what you've done. So that more people might find that rest until you come back and have the world we all wait for. We love you, Jesus. And we thank you that you accomplished it all on the cross and in the resurrection. Apart from that, we have no hope. But because it happened, we have hope. So may we be people of hope. In Jesus' name, amen.